I would love if you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, we're going to be in verses 20 through 40 today, so a pretty good-sized chunk. Uh, but before we get there, I want you to try to go back in time. And for a lot of you, this is going to be a long trek back in time. Maybe for a few of you, it's not that far back. But try to trek back in time to high school. Can, can you do that? So some of you may be like, oh, man, that's five years ago. And some of you, that's you know, a little bit more than five years ago. But try to imagine back in high school. And when you were in high school, you probably had lots of gifts and abilities. And maybe you had more gifts and abilities than the now. Not really, but you thought you did. There were a lot of things that you thought you were pretty good at. And so let's imagine that we're in, in a classroom setting. And we all decided to use our gifts and abilities in that setting. So maybe there's one of us who's standing around in the, in the corner and we're playing the saxophone and we're going at it and we're doing a great job with the saxophone. And then there's somebody else who set up a basketball hoop in the classroom and he's shooting away and nailing threes, doing the Steph Curry thing. Um, there's, there's somebody in the corner reading poetry very beautifully that, that she has memorized. And then there's, there's somebody who's speaking French over here and showing off his linguistic skills. Um, what kind of learning environment is that? Good one? Not a very good one. Now, all of the things that they're doing are, are commendable in some sense, right? Is, is it good to play an instrument? Yes, it is good. Is athletic ability, those things are good. Um, poetry, for maybe for some of you don't see why poetry is good, but poetry is good. It can be useful. It can be helpful. Um, good for your brain, something. It's good for something. And then, yeah, learning languages is great. It's great for your mind. You might be able to use it in another context, all of those things. But it's out of place, when everybody's doing their own thing, then no one's really learning. That sometimes you have to not do your own thing for the good of everybody else in the room. There are times to use the, to play the saxophone, and there are times not to play the saxophone. Now, we could imagine the opposite kind of a setting, where there's a very strict disciplinarian teacher, and only he talks, and nobody else can say a word, and nobody else can participate, and then you just be, you're just listener. You're a listener, and you're not a participant, and that also wouldn't be a good classroom setting. So there's, there's a balance to it, and we can imagine that. I want you to keep that in mind. I'm going to return to that um, example, but flip it around and think about the church that way. And because I, I think that's very relevant to what we're doing in First Corinthians. As a bit of a review, we've been going through First Corinthians for a long time. We started in September, believe it or not. So a very, very long time. And I think it's, it's helpful sometimes to reorient ourselves to what's going on in the whole book so that we don't lose the forest for the trees. So in First Corinthians, Paul really is, and you can follow along in your notes if you'd like, there's no blanks, but this is where I'm at in the review section. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is correcting the emphasis on human wisdom, which is an emphasis that leads to factions and divisions and a focus on ourselves rather than a focus on God. So the Corinthian church, following the culture around them, it's a culture that's very, very obsessed with, with glory and honor. They're obsessed with glory and honor. And as a result, they're divided into around different leaders. There's groups of people saying, I'm, I follow Peter or Cephas as he's named, or I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. And there's a crowd that says, I follow Jesus. And there's all these different people, these different factions in the church based upon the skills, the oratory skills, the eloquence of the speaker. They're, they're thinking this person's a more glorious person to follow. And their problem was that they were operating according to standards of human wisdom not godly wisdom. Human wisdom is self-promoting. It's all about me. It's about putting myself to the forefront and self-serving. But godly wisdom is shown at the cross where 
God becomes one of us, suffers and dies for his people, where the king of glory suffers for the masses and dies on the cross. That's godly wisdom. That's the opposite of this self-promoting, self-serving sort of wisdom. So having called on them, Paul calls on them to abandon worldly wisdom. So having done that and embrace godly wisdom, he calls on them to consider the needs of others and what's good for others above their own rights and their own privileges. So Paul gives himself as an example of somebody who's willing to give up his own rights. Paul, as, as, a, as their missionary, as their speaker, as the apostle, um, he has the right to expect and even demand a salary from the Corinthian church. It would not have been wrong for Paul to have been supported by the Corinthian church. In fact, elsewhere, he tells them to support their elders who teach well and pastors and, and support missionaries and those sorts of things. But he gave that up. He gave it up because it wasn't what was best for the situation. I think part of it was trying to combat this sort of thing where there's all this divisions and factionalism and maybe people would think that Paul owes them something because they support him. But he gives that up because of what's best for the church. He also gave up the right to be married. Paul says, I have the right to have a wife, but it's not what was best for the church because Paul was traveling to different churches. He spent a lot of time in different places, and that wasn't a life conducive to, to married life. And so he gave up his right to be, to be married. It wasn't wrong for him to be married. He might have even desired it on some level. However, he gave up that right for what was best for the church. And so he's giving himself as an example of someone who's given up what he would like, his rights, his needs, for the sake of what's best for the body. And he calls on the Corinthians similarly to be focused on what edifies and builds up the body and glorifies God, and not to be focused on their own rights and privileges. This is godly wisdom in action. Following Messiah, who gave himself up for us, we are called to give of ourselves, give up our rights sometimes, and serve one another. And this leads us into this extended section on spiritual gifts that we'll be wrapping up today. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, has equipped the church with spiritual gifts. They are given for the good of the body of Christ. They are given for the purpose of equipping and building up the church. But they must be exercised in love. They must be exercised in love if they're to be of any value. Love is greater than any spiritual gift because spiritual gifts have temporary functions. And for the good of the church, they're for a time, but love endures forever. As Pastor Tyler, I think, pointed out last week, uh, faith, hope, love, hope has an end. That we hope for something, but there will be a day when our hopes are realized. Faith has an end. There will be a day we won't need faith. Christ will be right in front of us and we'll be experiencing God in all of the fullness of what that means. So faith and hope have an expiration date. Spiritual gifts have an expiration date. They're good for a time and a season. They're not bad, but they're, they're, they're not permanent. But love is forever. We will never stop loving. We will never stop loving God. We'll never stop being loved by God and we'll never stop loving each other. In fact, our love will be made perfect. We'll be more uh, more loving than we are today. So love is forever and is better than any greater spiritual gift because it lasts forever and it will never pass away. So believers should weigh the use of their spiritual gifts with the measure of value, using them in love, but weighing them with the measure of value to be gained by the body of Christ rather than using them to bring honor and glory to themselves. In today's text, Paul instructs the Corinthian church to practice spiritual gifts in an orderly and edifying manner that promotes the health and unity of the body 
rather than the praise and glory of the individual. And he says, and this is somewhat countercultural to, to our day, it is better to remain silent sometimes than to exercise gifts in a way that is unprofitable. I'm going to read the whole text, and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to say a few things before we dive into the text in more detail, and I'm going to reread different sections as we go so that we can kind of keep these things in mind as I explain some things that are difficult in the text. There are some issues in this passage that are hard to understand, and there are some issues that are maybe even will make you a little uncomfortable as we read the passage. Um, But remember, this is God's word, and we will examine it in more detail here in a minute. So please read 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to start at verse 20 all the way to verse 40 with me. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in regards to evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. Even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the guidance that your word gives us gives to the church. Thank you that you have not left us on our own to figure out how we ought to worship you, how we ought to bring you honor and glory. Father, I pray that as we look at this passage, I pray that your spirit will work in our hearts. I pray that you will help us to see what, um, what you are saying through your word. I pray that you will help us to, to see what in our lives needs to be brought into conformity um, with your word. I pray that as I speak, that you will guide me, and I pray that if there's anything I'm planning on saying that is not in line with what your word says, that you will cause me to forget it. Um, Father, I I just pray for for us as we listen, as we go forward um, this week, that you will continue to guide us, help us to apply this to our lives, and help us to worship you in a way that brings honor and glory to you, and not honor and glory to ourselves. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So before I move into the text, a few things, I'm not going to spend too long on this, but a few things I think kind of as preliminary statements need to be said, um, because this is kind of a difficult text, and there's some things that we kind of need to understand first. So first, the letter of 1 Corinthians was written to a messy and dysfunctional church. As, as If you followed us through this whole 1 Corinthians series, um, you know, the picture that we have right there of this dog in the middle of a bunch of paint buckets, um, very messy dog, very messy situation. But this church was a very messy church. There's a lot of things going on that Paul is correcting that are very, very dysfunctional. Um, there are, there's, there's questions about prostitutes, there's questions about incest, there's questions about different factions and rivalries in the church where people are dividing over different personalities. It's a very, very messy church. And so Paul is writing to correct. And so there's much to be applied and gleaned from this passage, but it's important to see that this passage and the passages preceding it are functioning primarily as corrective rather than maybe a descriptive of what always needs to be normative. He's he's correcting a bad situation. Um, As an example of how sometimes we our views are skewed the wrong way. My son, Calvin, who's four, uh, he's convinced that England is a very poor country where people don't have enough food, that people are starving to death in England and that England needs food and the poor English people. And that's not really true. But the reason he has that impression was because of a book that we read about World War I where the Germans... Um, cut off England from, from the food getting into the country. And so it talked about how, you know, they were, there were food shortages in England. And so from that book, his very limited understanding of England, his view is England's a poor country where people are starving. Uh, that's not accurate. It's not true. And you all know better than that, but we can do the same thing. This text is a corrective at things going wrong in the church of what the problems are in the church. And if we just viewed it in isolation rather than with all of scripture, then we, we might see, well, spiritual gifts as primarily being a bad thing, or women speaking as primarily being a bad thing. And I don't think that's the point. I think this is, this is functioning as a corrective. We need to hear it. It's God's word. We need to listen to it. We need to obey it. But it, we also need to see it in its proper context. And this is a corrective to a messy, dysfunctional church. Secondly, this text is not written, this might be frustrating to you, but this text is not written to answer all of our questions. We have all kinds of questions about spiritual gifts. I do too. Um, Maybe your question is, what are tongues? Maybe your question is, what's prophecy? Or are these gifts for today? And these are important questions. And I'm going to give you my, my take on these. But that's not the question. Those aren't the questions that this text seeks to answer. This text is not seeking to answer what are tongues? What is, what is prophecy? Are these gifts for today? It's addressing a particular situation. So part of submitting to a text is being willing to hear what the text is saying, not what we want it to say or wish it would say. And so our questions are good, and there's nothing wrong with questions. Ask all the questions you want and, and search the scriptures for the answers to those. But when we listen to the text, sometimes our questions can mute the text and we're unable to hear it. So we need to hear it for what it, it has to say. And then briefly, because I think it's important, I think it would be distracting if I didn't give you my perspective on some of these things and the, where I'm coming from. And I think it's fine if you disagree with me. These are, some of these issues are issues that, as Christians, we don't all have to have the same perspective. I imagine that in, the, in this congregation, actually I know that in this congregation, we don't all agree on these issues. And that's okay. I think that's great that we can worship together and not be on the exact same page with everything. And I think actually part of applying this text might be how, how we approach such issues. 
Um, I'm not going to spend tons of time because I think Pastor Tyler and Pastor Jay have addressed these questions quite well. I'm not going to rehash them in detail. But in case you weren't here or don't remember, some brief definitions from me. I believe that tongues were given primarily to authenticate the church and to incorporate different groups into the church. Primarily, we see that in the book of Acts. Um, I believe that they were actual languages, although when they were not interpreted, they weren't always understood. So sometimes they were used in contexts where people didn't understand what they were saying, and I don't think that was always necessarily bad. Uh, the person speaking in tongues, though I think this is an important point, and this text assumes it. The person speaking in tongues or giving a prophetic utterance, um, it wasn't an ecstatic experience where they lost control of themselves. If he can give them instructions of two or three, and then you need to be silent in such and such a context, they're, they're, they're in control of themselves. They can choose whether to exercise it or not. This is not where you lose control and are no, no longer can uh, make decisions of what you're doing and not doing. Someone's mind's not taken over. You're not being possessed by the Holy Spirit or something like that. Um, regarding prophecy, I believe prophecy was also what you might call a supernatural gift. I'm not sure I like that term, but you could call it that. Although some have equated it with preaching, I don't, I don't think it is preaching. I think maybe if you teaching would, would be more likely um, equivalent. Um, we see prophecy in Acts several times where people are given supernatural insight into a situation. I'm going to talk about one of those a little bit later. And I don't think it's the same thing as preaching. I think there were prophets in the New Testament context that were given some supernatural insight into something or a situation. And I think that's what he's talking about is prophecy. I don't see it as the same thing as teaching. Some people believe that, but I don't, I don't agree. And as for whether gifts, these gifts are in use today, I would categorize myself as what maybe you'd call open but cautious. I I don't believe scripture expressly teaches that these gifts ended. um, And I don't believe scripture expressly teaches that they are no longer in force. But I don't see most of their use today, the way that people usually use them today, conforming to the descriptions that we find in the New Testament. Um, I believe that God can certainly work through those means. God can work supernaturally. God is God. And who are we to say what God can and can't do? He's God. So if God wants to use things, he can use things. But I don't see any mandate in scripture that these things have to continue or any warrant that says we have to use them in the church. Um, If someone claimed to have these gifts, I would carefully weigh what they say with scripture. Like Pastor Tyler said last week, God does not contradict himself. He's not a God of contradiction or a God of confusion. So if somebody says, God told me this and scripture says this, I would say, no, God didn't tell you that. He used an example of somebody saying that, you know, you have to leave, you were told by God to leave your husband or your wife. I've heard that exact same thing before where somebody said, uh, God told me to leave my wife or my husband and marry somebody else. Um, no, he didn't. That's not, God did not say that. So if it clearly contradicts scripture, it clearly did not come from God. God does not contradict himself. I would also reiterate that we should resist getting caught up in what is flashy and showy. Uh, God can do miracles. And I think he does do miracles. God is a God of the miraculous, but God is more often at work in the boring daily doldrums of our lives as we slowly grow in Christ likeness. And that may not be a very exciting thing to say, but hopefully that's an encouraging thing to say because most of our lives are more boring than we imagined them when we were 18. Um, there's a lot more boring doldrums in our lives and there are exciting big moments, but God is at work in those, those boring doldrums of our daily lives, the daily things that we do every single day. God is working. So to sum up, I believe both tongues and prophecies are what you might call supernatural gifts. And although scripture does not close the door to their use, it doesn't indicate that they're necessary for the well-being of the church and says nothing that would make me suppose they must be an aspect of a well-functioning church today. 
With all that out of the way, I'm going to return to today's text. We already read it, but I I really want to reread each paragraph and then talk about those paragraphs because there's a few difficult issues that have to kind of be worked through. And so I'm going to return verses 20 to 25. If you still have your Bibles open, you can follow me there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written by people of, a stra- of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all and he's called to account by all and by the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I don't know if you noticed this, but at first glance, this text seems to be contradictory. I don't believe it is. But at the first glance, it says that tongues are for unbelievers. And then it says that if somebody comes into your church into your assembly, and they're speaking in tongues, it's not a benefit to the person coming into the church. So it doesn't seem to be for unbelievers. And he says prophecy is more profitable than unbelievers. So which is it? Is he saying it's for believers or unbelievers? And I think the key to understanding this is the quotation from Isaiah. And Isaiah is not a text that, a book that the church is usually as familiar with. It's a, it's a kind of a tough book for a lot of us to understand. But if you remember Isaiah's mission in Isaiah chapter six was not a happy mission. It was to preach to people who won't listen and won't obey. So God says, who will go for us? Isaiah says, here I am Lord. And then this great mission he gets is, Hey, go preach. No one's going to listen to you. No one's going to obey, but you're going to do it anyway. (laughs) Yay. And Isaiah does, does do that. Exactly. And people don't listen and they don't obey. This text is talking about how God though is going to speak to the people in a foreign tongue. And the foreign tongue he's going to speak to them is the tongue of the Assyrians, because the Assyrians are going to invade. They're going to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. They're going to invade the southern kingdom of Israel and create quite a bit of havoc before God rescues them. And so God is speaking to them, in a sense, in a foreign tongue. And I think the point that he's making, it's it's rather a strange point to our ears, but the point he's making is that tongues are a sign of judgment, It's actually a negative sign because when somebody hears someone speaking in tongues and they don't understand, then it it leads to them rejecting. We see this in other places too. Um, Jesus in the parables, he says that sometimes he speaks in parables, sometimes he speaks in parables and it's so that people can understand, but there are other times he speaks in parables so that they won't understand. And it's a sign of judgment to the people listening. And I think that's the same thing here. So if somebody comes into your church and they're speaking in tongues, they don't hear, it causes them to reject it. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians earlier, where people reject God's wisdom rather than human wisdom because it doesn't make sense to them. They don't understand it. A crucified Messiah, that doesn't make sense. So people reject it because they don't understand. Similarly here, when people come into your assembly and they hear you speaking in tongues, they reject it because they don't understand. I think that's the point. And what Paul's doing here. So in your notes, um, the blanks here, because the meaning of a spoken tongue without an interpretation is unintelligible, meaning you can't understand what they're saying, it leads to outsiders rejecting the message and functions as a sign to unbelievers of judgment. 
it is of limited value then to both believers and unbelievers when it goes uninterpreted, when you can't understand what it's saying. Prophetic utterances, on the other hand, are intelligible. You can understand what they're saying, and this may lead to the conviction, repentance, and salvation of outsiders. To the conviction, repentance, and salvation of outsiders. So the Corinthians are being instructed to take this into consideration, um, the benefit of exercising their gifts to those listening, to take into consideration the benefit of exercising their gifts to those listening. An uninterpreted, unintelligible message is of little value to the congregation. So prophecy, Paul is saying, is to be preferred over speaking in tongues, which he's already said earlier in chapter 14, um, speaking in tongues without interpreter, because it can bring the repentance of an unbeliever. It can edify the believer. I don't think preaching, by the way, I already said this, but I don't think preaching is the same thing as what Paul calls prophecy here. But I would think it functions similarly, that when somebody comes in, they hear the message preached, or when you in your own lives share the gospel with somebody else, they can understand what is being said, and they can, they can respond to it. Um, there are other things that we do, let's say, take the Lord's Supper. If we did the Lord's Supper together, and there were people sitting among us, and it wasn't explained, it might seem like a really strange practice, or baptism might seem like a really strange practice if it's not explained. And I think similarly here, Something that's intelligible can lead to somebody being convicted and repenting and believing. Something that's unintelligible to the outside, it might have some value, but it doesn't lead to conviction and repentance because it's not understood. I think that's the point that Paul is making. So the benefit of speaking in tongues without interpreter is limited because it's unintelligible. Secondly, we need to keep in mind the purpose of spiritual gifts as the edification of the body, not the individual. So picking up at verse 26, Paul continues. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be Silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So picking up in your notes once again, if spiritual gifts are to benefit the body of Christ, they must be exercised in an orderly and disciplined manner. Each one must speak in turn, and, and this is a theme throughout this passage, remain silent. If their speech is not edifying to the congregation. Let's go back to that picture of a, of a chaotic, messy classroom. And let's, let's picture it as a church service. So let's say that there's somebody who's very gifted with a saxophone playing with a saxophone over there. And there's somebody who's, who's very gifted um, singing, who's singing over here. And there's somebody who's very gifted at playing the harp, playing the harp over here. And there's somebody who's very gifted at teaching, trying to teach in the corner over here. And there's people who are serving. And there's all this chaos and things are going all over the place. That would not be an effective um, context for learning and growing, would it? Um, and if you imagine the Corinthian church, Paul's, Paul's given basic, almost kindergarten instructions to them. Um, take your turn. Don't speak when somebody else is speaking. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is very basic stuff. But the fact that he has to give these instructions means they weren't doing this. They were all speaking at once. Somebody's speaking, somebody else interrupts them, and it's chaos. And that is not a good context for worshiping God, bring glory to God, because what you're doing and utilizing your gifts in this context is bringing attention to yourself. You're competing for airtime. And that is, that is not 
what, what fits this picture that Paul has given earlier of one body with many parts, all functioning to bring glory and honor to God. So each person needs to wait their turn. If there's no one to interpret, he says they should avoid speaking in tongues at all publicly, but they can speak privately to themselves and to God. If those who are prophesying should do the same, wait their turn. Again, kindergarten instructions, wait your turn. Put your hand up. Don't interrupt. And when you're done, sit down. Listen to the next person. That's basically what he's saying. So not only should spiritual gifts be exercised orderly, and this is again in your notes, they must be exercised under the proper authority. So they should be orderly, not chaotic, but also under the proper authority. If spiritual gifts are to benefit the body, they must be exercised under the authority of Scripture and the church. They must be uh, exercised under the authority of Scripture and the church. Prophetic utterances and the interpretations of tongues must be evaluated weighed and judged, not accepted uncritically, evaluated, weighed and judged, not accepted uncritically. Paul's instructing the church to evaluate what the prophets say and make sure that they line up with what the church already knows to be true. This is interesting. And I think there's an example of this in the book of Acts, because although prophetic utterances are given by the spirit, so, I mean, they were given by the spirit, they can be misinterpreted. So if you remember in Acts, I think it's chapter 21, Agabus is a prophet And he and some other prophets tell Paul that he's going to be bound and imprisoned. And so the church, when they hear this, they all say, Paul, you can't go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound and imprisoned. And so everybody thinks that the way this should be applied is Paul to not go to Jerusalem. But Paul is very insistent. No, I'm going to go to Jerusalem anyway. And so they say, well, if that's the Lord's will, it's the Lord's will. He goes to Jerusalem. The prophecy was correct. He's bound. He's imprisoned. But... That was God's plan. God used that to bring the gospel to Rome, where Paul was actually imprisoned in a house where people came to him to hear the gospel, and he was able to bring the gospel to Rome, and many people were saved as a result. So although God did give a prophecy that this is what's going to happen to you, Paul, it can be misapplied or misunderstood. And so we need to evaluate these things, is what Paul is saying. Don't just accept them uncritically. These need to be weighed and evaluated. Um, so the prophecy can give insight, but it can be misinterpreted, can be misapplied. The Corinthians are told to weigh and evaluate these things. Prophets, prophets are subject to the church and to scripture. They can't just say whatever they want to say. They have to listen to others as well. Okay, here's the fun part. So this is what I see as a little bit of an aside. There's different views on this. I think it's still part of the argument, but verses 34 and 35. As in all the churches of the saints... The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Hmm. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't say it. (laughs) Okay. These verses are a bit difficult. Um, and it's not difficult just because they're uncomfortable. I mean, maybe, maybe there are verses that we don't like to hear that are uncomfortable that, that don't fit with what we're saying. And it may seem pretty straightforward. Paul doesn't really give exceptions or anything. He just says, hey, this is what the law says. Everybody else does it. You need to keep this. But it can't be what Paul, it can't mean, it can't mean that women must always be silent in the church. It can't mean that because Paul would be contradicting himself very directly. In chapter 11, Paul gives instructions to women while they pray and prophesy. He didn't go to chapter 14 and then say, well, no, women have to be absolutely silent. That doesn't make any sense. Paul didn't forget what he said in chapter 11, and now he's saying something opposite in chapter 14. It doesn't fit his, the flow of his argument at all. Um, 
what he's, what he's saying is it has to be read in his context. And I think the context will give us clues. There's a lot of different, a lot of different views out there. Some have suggested that this text was, was added in later um, and that it was added by another scribe. I don't believe that is true. There's some manuscript warrant for that, but I don't believe it holds up. I won't get into it. You can ask me about it if you want. Another view is that Paul is quoting the Corinthians in order to refute it. And which he does a few times in Corinthians. He says, you know, it is good for a man not to have a wife. And then he refutes that in some sense. So he gives a quote of the Corinthians and then refutes it. However, he doesn't follow the same grammatical structure as he does. He doesn't use the same language, not the same grammar. That view doesn't really make sense to me either, that he's just quoting it to refute it. Um, probably, this is in your notes here, and I say probably, there's not a consensus in, among scholars on this. But in, as I read it and studied it, this is the conclusion I came to. So probably given the context... This was a prohibition on women, I think primarily wives, speaking during the evaluation of prophetic utterances. So we just finished when somebody gives a prophecy that the church is supposed to evaluate it, weigh it. And I think this is a restriction on women speaking during that, that portion of the, of the service. So imagine with me in a patriarchal, honor-shame type culture, a culture very different from ours. Um, where, where men are the, the king of the household, as it really was in a Greek or Roman context. This is true in a lot of cultures around the world still today. Imagine that a husband gave a prophecy or an interpretation, and then his wife stood up and started questioning it. That would be an extremely embarrassing, shameful thing in that context. That would be an embarrassing thing for the husband. It would be seen as a shameful thing for the wife to do that. And Paul is appealing to the law. And for Paul, the law is the Old Testament. I think he's going back to the creative order, just like he does in 1 Timothy, that God created Adam first and then Eve. And so wives submit to your husbands, the same kind of thing that he does elsewhere in the New Testament. I think he's appealing to the creative order so that a wife should submit and listen rather than offer her critique. Now, our context is a little bit different. Um, when I get home, my wife is seminary educated. She's very intelligent. She has opinions. And I'm sure that she might have some opinions on my sermon today. And I will listen to them. I will listen to them. I will not dismiss them and say, you know, wife, remember what it says in First Corinthians? I will not do that. I am not stupid. However, um, so... Is this a critique that women must always be silent? No, but I think given the context that what he's talking about is while these prophecies, these interpretations are being uttered, that women should not speak up, especially wives. I think he's talking about wives when he talks about submission and all that should not speak up against and critique their husband's prophecies and interpretations that would just lead to chaos, shame, disorder, not the way things normally functioned. It wouldn't be helpful for a well-functioning marriage either. And I think that's, I think that's the point. That Paul is making here. So the purpose of Paul's statement is to keep everything in the church functioning in an orderly and peaceful manner. He's not trying to shut women up. He's already, he's already assuming that they're praying and prophesying in the church. Um, he's not trying to forbid them from speaking, but he's instructing them to avoid shaming their husband, husbands and operating outside of proper authority. So the, the last section moving into verse thir- verses 36 to 40 and wrapping this up, Paul says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. 
but all should be done decently and in order. Paul is calling on the Corinthian church to submit to his authority and the church's authority and practice. Submit to his and the church's authority and practice. He asked rather sarcastically, did the word of God come from you? Are you the ones who gave us the word of God? Answer, no. Um, are you the only ones that has reached? Has the word of God only came to you? No, this church thing's a little bit bigger than you. Um, are you, the, are you the ones who know everything? No, you don't know everything. Um, everybody else is practicing things differently than you do. They're not in order. They're not in disorder and chaos and everybody's speaking whenever they want to. So their practice is out of step with what God has revealed. It's out of step with what other churches practice and fill in the blanks in your notes out of step with what constitutes good order and mutual edification. He is calling them on them to submit to his authority, come back in line with common church practice. Their gifts are good. They're not to be forbidden. He's not saying that their spiritual gifts should not be used and that they have no benefit. He's saying that they need to be used well, subjected to what God has revealed and subjected to what the congregation needs, not the individual. So moving to the section on responding to God's words, God's word, whatever your beliefs about certain spiritual gifts, and I'm assuming in preaching this, that we don't all agree. And I I think that's a healthy, good thing, that we can disagree on things, that we can come together as one body and worship together and not all agree. I think that's wonderful. We don't have to agree on everything. There's some things you need to agree on, um, the Trinity and deity of Christ and things like that. But there are other things that we we can peacefully disagree on. But whatever your beliefs about spiritual gifts and their use today, all of us need to submit our use of God's gifts to the needs of the body, And the authority of scripture. So if next week when Pastor Jay is preaching, I were to stand up in the middle of his sermon and start speaking in tongues. And I don't have the gift of speaking in tongues. I don't believe I do. I would not be edifying anyone. I would be drawing attention away from Pastor Jay preaching God's word. So drawing attention away from God's word to myself. And that would be very wrong, wouldn't it? I would would be seeking to bring attention to me, not to Christ. Drawing attention away from Christ. Drawing attention away from scripture. Uh, and drawing attention to myself. So we, we, I don't believe we should quench the use of our gifts or others' gifts, but we should not use spiritual gifts as a platform for our own benefit and agenda. And I think this, this also applies to, to gifts of different categories. I think if we're going to apply this passage consistently, we can talk about other gifts as well. Let's say, going back to my illustration, that I am a gifted saxophone player. And um, I, was, I approached Luke and asked Luke, I want to be on the worship team. I have, I'm gifted in the saxophone. Luke says, and maybe he would say this, maybe he wouldn't. That's great, but I don't really have a use for you right now. Now, I could be upset. I could, I'm really good at this. And he's, my gifts are not being utilized. And he's, this, is, this is really, he's a jerk. I, 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 could, I, I could give that kind of self-talk or that kind of talk to the church that these are my gifts. I need to use them. And we live in a culture where we're expressing ourselves and being true to ourselves and showing our gifts and our abilities is very important. And he has this very countercultural command three times in the text in different situations of be quiet, be silent, that there's a time for silence. There's a time for me to use my gift. And if I was set gifted at the saxophone, I, I would hope I could use that gift to bring honor and glory to God. But there are other times when utilizing that gift is not what's best for the body. And I need to accept that. And that maybe I can glorify God in my silence, which seems like kind of a radical idea. Um, let's say for another example, in our community groups, that I have this terrific insight on, on the scripture that we, we just read on the text or on the sermon, and I can't wait to share it. 
But then somebody starts talking about this problem that they have, and all the conversation is focused on their problem. And, hey, can we get to the, can we get to the text? Because I have this really important insight that I want to share and that everybody needs to hear. Uh, that would maybe, in that context, very likely be about myself, isn't it? That I want my insight to be heard. I want to give my wisdom. I want to give my knowledge and show it to people so that people can see what an intelligent person I am. But is that bringing honor and glory to God? And is that considering the, the needs of the body? No, that's considering myself. And so there's this very radical idea in the text. I believe that one way that we can worship and honor and glorify God is by not using our gifts, our talents, our abilities, maybe being quiet. Maybe the best thing that we can do is to glorify God. Maybe there are times the best thing we can do to glorify God is to be silent. Maybe there are times where you disagree with something. And I'm sure we all disagree with things from time to time. Sometimes that needs to be spoken. Maybe it's important. Maybe I committed heresy in my sermon. You need to speak up and you need to say something to me about that. However, there are other times where maybe, maybe we we're better at something. We have a better background and knowledge in something that, than other people do that are using their gifts in the church. And it's just really, honestly, not edifying for me to critique that. It's not edifying for me to point out what could be done better. It might be in certain situations, but there are other times where maybe the best thing I can do to glorify God and edify the body is to keep my mouth shut. And that, that seems a rather radical idea in a culture where we need to be expressing ourselves all the time and show who we are and be ourselves and all of that. But there are times where we need to subject ourselves to the needs of the body and to want, ask, does this glorify myself? Is this bringing attention to myself or does this glorify and bring attention to God? So when we exercise our spiritual gifts, or I, I think this applies to other talents and abilities, we must consider whether doing so, number one, brings attention and glory to Christ or brings glory and attention to ourselves because it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about Christ and it's not about what benefits me. It's about what benefits the whole. It's about what benefits the body. Number two, does it, does exercising your gift or your talent or ability foster unity within the church? Does it edify the church or does it cause rivalries and divisions? And if it causes rivalries and divisions that are not necessary, sometimes there's a right time to divide. Pastor Jay preached on that several months ago. Sometimes there is a right time to divide, but often we may speak up on something that will divide unnecessarily. And it's about us. It's not about others. It's not about Christ. And third, when we exercise our spiritual gifts, we must consider whether it's in line with scripture and, and sound doctrine or not. And if these parameters are not met, silence is the preferable option. It's not always the time to be silent. God has given you gifts and abilities. God has gifted all of us in wonderful ways. And we all image God through the gifts and the abilities and the talents that he's given us. We can glorify God and bring honor to God with those gifts. And it would be wrong for us as a church to squelch those gifts and say, oh no, only the pastors and only the staff and only certain people can use their gifts and everybody else just needs to sit and listen. That would be wrong. Paul, Paul talks, speaks to that. But it would also be wrong to think that we always need to be heard, that we always need our gifts to be used, that we always need to be able to exercise these things. We need to ask, can we glorify God with our gifts? Or, and kind of a radical idea in my mind, can we glorify God with our silence? Please stand with me as I pray and we're dismissed. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the truth 
that has been revealed to us through it. Um, Father, we, we all do sin in many different ways. And we do live in a culture and we live in a world. It's not just our culture that is very self-centered, is me-centered, that we want honor, we want glory, we want recognition. But Father, I pray that you will help us to see that there are times where it is inappropriate for us to speak up, it is inappropriate for us to use our gifts. There are times where using our gifts are glorifying to you, Father. I pray that you will use our gifts to glorify you. But I pray that you also give us wisdom and guidance to know when not to. Father, I I thank you for this body. I thank you for the the fellowship that we have. I thank you for the, the wonderful time that we've had worshiping you this morning. I pray that as we go forth, that we will be lights to, to a world that is dark oftentimes, that we will show your love through our actions. And I pray that as we come back together throughout the week and next Sunday, that we'll, we'll continue to live in such a way that honors our love for each other, your love for us, and in a way that fosters unity and love within your body and your, within your son's body. And we pray in his name and through the Holy Spirit. Amen.